Hello, George Collinet with you on Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. We are hearing Eusei Kensu, or I Know Who I Am, by DJ Mar Fox. It's music from an unexpected hotbed of Afro-diasporic sound, Lisbon, Portugal. Mar Fox is the leader of Lisbon's electronic batida scene. Originally based on an Angolan music known as Kuduro, Batida incorporates sounds and styles from across the Portuguese-speaking or Lusophone world. Its producers can trace their heritage to Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau, Sao Tome, Principe and Angola. But it is music that could only have been created in Lisbon. Yet, until recently, this world was virtually unknown outside of Portugal and effectively ignored within it. On this special Hip Deep edition of Afropop Worldwide, we're going to take you to Lisbon to find out how and why things have begun to change. Once the seat of a vast colonial empire, artists in Lisbon are using music to rethink the history and culture of their city, challenging the definition of what it means to be Portuguese. Stay tuned. <laughs> Before Columbus first sailed to America, Portuguese navigators had already begun to trade up and down the west coast of Africa, building forts and settling the previously uninhabited islands of Cape Verde, Sao Tome and Principe. They led the often violent foundations for what would be the world's first genuinely Atlantic culture, a mixture of African and European people that existed nowhere else. Along with Spain, Portugal was at the forefront of the so-called discoveries, journeys of conquest and trade that took its sailors everywhere, from Gao in India to Mozambique on the eastern shore of Africa and to Brazil, Angola and Guinea-Bissau around the Atlantic Basin. A vital part of this expansion was the slave trade. Brazil had quickly grown into a major producer of sugar and then gold. Massive numbers of slaves were needed to work on its mines and plantations. For centuries, the Portuguese surpassed all other nations in the number of slaves they transported across the Atlantic. In doing so, they created a trade in human flesh that intimately linked Lisbon, Brazil, and slave ports from Senegal to Angola. All of this was reflected in the streets of Lisbon, the first European city to rely on African slave labor. By some estimates, Lisbon was roughly 10% black in the 16th and 17th century. If you go to the city's museum and look at art from the period, you'll see depictions of that diverse world. Indians, Europeans, Native Americans and Africans, slaves and freedmen, lords and peasants, fishermen, and always, always an endless array of the boats and docks that made Lisbon rich. 
To better understand all this, we spoke to Derek Pardew, coordinator of Brazilian studies at Aarhus University. His new book explores issues of African identity in Lisbon. There's a part of town now that's called São Bento that was once called a big mocambo, seated by city authorities in the 18th century and dedicated to freed Africans. And it was a pretty big swath of land that for a while was a very vibrant community. They had a lot of contact with the rest of Lisbon. You can still see signs of this today. Sellers, many of them blacks or mixed race, traveled from port to port, sharing songs and instruments. They helped create a cultural mixture that became a vital influence on many Lusophone musical styles, including Cape Verde's Morna. And Portuguese Fado. To this day, Africans still live in Lisbon, but their presence is often hidden within the city's complex geography. If you were to look at Lisbon on a Google map, and you see the beautiful parts of the Lisbon municipality, when you start to fan out a little bit to what they call the north margins, and then if you go across the river, the Tagus River to the south margins, you start to see the neighborhoods change in terms of the demography, and you see many more immigrants. You could see like this sort of marginal circle, all these neighborhoods that have significant populations of Cape Verdeans, along with other Luso-Africans. Traces of African culture are everywhere in Lisbon, from Guinean women selling cola nuts at the side of a square, to phones ringing with the sounds of Angolan kizomba. Lisbon's African communities are woven into the fabric of city life. One of the best ways to see, and more importantly, to hear this influence is by diving into the city's still active vinyl culture. Producer Sam Backer brings us a report from the ground. Lisbon is home to record stores specializing in everything from psychedelic rock to traditional fado. But if you're like us and you want to buy some African records without blowing your entire budget on vinyl, then the place to go is the Fiera de Ladra, a sprawling flea market high up on a hill near the city's main train station. The Ladra, Ladra mean robbery? No. Because everybody sold fish and they come sell it to you. And everybody knows it, but they don't care. So the big thing here is come really early, the set. Seven in the morning, all right, because it's when all the good dishes is there. So they buy for cheap and sell it a little bit more. That is the big business of this market. I see the view, yeah. I was taken there by Wilson, one of the two DJs behind Celeste Mariposa, a project devoted to exploring the musical heritage of Afro-Lisbon. For most of the past decade, the group has been on a mission to bring the city's dense musical history back to life. And what better place to start than by digging through some crates? Calçada da Estrela de Lisboa, Passos Valentim de Carvalho. I think I found this amazing vinyl. It's with Americ Brit, quite known. This band, they make like just one or two uh, uh, records. Stop the chip. <laughs> Don't say nobody. 
What amazed me about the market was just how many of these records there were. It was an entire musical universe that had barely made it onto CD, let alone to the US. Wilson kept pointing out just how many of these records had been recorded in Lisbon. See, recording on Studios Musicor Lisboa, Portugal, but edited and production and distributed in Angola. The studios, Lisbon, Portugal, it was always here because, yeah, we are from Europe and we have more technology, right? When you think about a nation's music, you tend to think about it being recorded in that actual nation. But for most of what I was hearing in the market, that just wasn't true. Lisbon itself was acting as a central point for recording, pressing, and distributing. Lusophonia, the idea that all Portuguese-speaking nations form a genuine community, remains controversial. It echoes some of the worst propaganda of the colonial government and can play as an excuse for an imperialist past. But then you visit the Feira de Ladra. The music found here makes its own argument for a different idea of Lusophonia. Let's hear another classic record from Lisbon. This is Monakin Jishika by Bonga. And although the lyrics reference Angola, its melancholy guitars bears the unmistakable mark of Portugal. Ah, 
the great bonga of Angola. I'm Georges Collinet with Lisbon dancing towards the future on Afropop Worldwide. Major support for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the National Endowment for the Arts. Be sure to check out afropop.org for more rare cuts from the markets of Lisbon. If you do accept this idea of Lusophonia, a worldwide Portuguese-speaking community, you have to base it on the hard facts of history. Portugal's African empire was Europe's first, and it lasted longest. As independence movements began to sweep the continent in the 60s, the Portuguese grimly held on, refusing to give up even as armed revolt broke out in colony after colony. And finally, the military rebelled and brought down the oppressive regime led by Augusto Salazar. The year was 1974, and Salazar's Estado Novo had ruled the country since the 1930s. 1974 revolutionized the Lusophone world. After over a decade of conflict, the former colonies quickly moved to set up new governments. Portugal faced its own identity crisis. Without an empire, what was it? The social movements that had worked to end Salazar's dictatorship had their answer ready. Portugal will become a European nation, liberal and cosmopolitan. When there's a revolution in 1974, Portuguese youth, they realize we're not in a, in a Western country. That's Francisco Sousa, who along with Wilson makes up the Celeste Mariposa DJ project. People realize we have 25% of illiteracy in the country when they compare it to the rest of Europe in 1974. It's a lot. We were a poor country. People were realizing it's not like this empire, this power. And so the first uh, cultural reaction was, we are a Western country. Let's listen to the latest rock and roll, the la latest electronic music. As Lisbon looked towards Europe, it turned its back on Africa but trauma lurked beneath the surface. Hundreds of thousands had fought in Africa, and over a million had fled from the colonies. The result is a city still hesitant to fully embrace its history. I don't know anybody that doesn't have directly somebody that was in Africa or related or has a trauma, or knows somebody that has a trauma. It's something really, really present in society, still, even still today. And some of them really... They don't talk about it, but they have, they have a lot of problems still dealing with that. And so Africa became a taboo. Techno, an American import, was popular in the 90s. And Francisco started out DJing hard-edge records from Detroit. His life changed when he first heard Funana. He realized that not only did Lisbon have a dance music as potent as any techno, but that the records blowing his mind had been recorded around the block from his house. There was one record called Mornas e Cluderes from a Cabo Verdean band called Black Power, uh, whose leader was Norbert Tavares, which is a fantastic musician from Cabo Verde. At the back of the record, there was a text about Portugal and how the music and the culture had mixed for many years. And it had been recorded just 300 meters from here, from my house. It was a big event in my life. For Francisco, not knowing about the black music of Lisbon reflected a deeper issue in Portuguese culture. I was 25 years old. I had been researching music with no prejudice that I was aware of. 
And I had missed music that was blocks away. That says a lot about the society we live in. That means we consume music in a really biased way. And our question was, why is nobody interested in this? Celeste Mariposa started by rescuing vintage recordings from Oblivion, but now they are launching their own record label. The goal is to find the brilliant musicians that fill Lisbon and help them make the great records they deserve. The first release is Kudi Hola from the Angolan guitarist Chalo Correa, recorded with Chalo's crack band over a single afternoon. It's a winner from top to bottom. Let's hear Cherche Criola. I tell you, that's the best samba I've heard in years. While Celeste Mariposa makes all sounds new, another one of Lisbon's leading musicians works, well, the other way around. Pedro Coquinao records under the name Batida, just like the genre of music we mentioned earlier. He's a DJ, producer, and visual artist as you can hear, his songs mix and match touchstones from Afro-Lisbon and Angola for the 21st century dance floor. Matida was born in Angola to a Portuguese family. They were forced to return to Lisbon after the revolution. His cultural influences reflect the diversity of his home city. 
He spent much of his youth in the suburb of Amadora, an area of immigrants from all over the Lusophone world. You hear your mother and your grandmother talking about somewhere else, and even if you are not remembering or living again those memories of being there, you are living this reality that was growing up in Lisbon, but hearing about music from somewhere, eating food from another place, and stories from another place. Growing up surrounded by these distant sounds gave Batida a distinctive view on Lisbon's musical culture. He fell equally in love with Trouble House and Samba and Rap and Kuduro. The music he releases as Batida is a unique fusion of all of them. Let me put my grandfather and myself dancing on the same track. Music makes a bridge between those sounds from the 60s and 70s, those African guitars, especially from Congo and Angola, that were not being that used on electronic music. They would sound always very traditional or ethnic or old. I had that need to have that melancholy feeling but also a certain edginess or a certain sound that would relate to today and not always sound like something that was, oh, this is an oldie from our fathers. And when I do that, I have the agenda of crossing genres and crossing borders and crossing generations. Engaging with Portugal's history this way has deeper implications. Batida says his music is not political as such, but its cultural message reflects a generation rethinking the past in a city all too happy to turn a blind eye to it. Nostalgia remains a powerful element in Portuguese culture. Batida's art asks his listeners to reconsider just how and why they remember. On my first uh, national edition of the record, which was Dance Mangolé, uh, on the cover I had saudade, which means nostalgia in Portuguese. It's a, it's a particular Portuguese word that means missing something. And I had that word on the cover with an interrogation point. Saudade? Saudade of what exactly? What saudade do you have? Let's hear Fica Atento from Batita's second album, Dois. <laughs> okay. Fico Atendo by Batida. While it's possible to hear great African music throughout Lisbon, you'll mostly find musicians playing in small cafes and restaurants. Venues that make them the center of attention are much harder to find. One of the oldest is African Sundays, held every week in the basement of El Chapito, a school and cultural center. We caught a great set organized by Capitao, an Angolan percussionist who's lived in Lisbon for decades.
crowd is a mix of tourists and hip Lisboners, while the band pulls from a rotating cast of the city's best African musicians. After the show, we spoke with Alexandra, the club's manager. She told us that although recent years have seen a growing buzz around African music, this hasn't translated into the kind of infrastructure that musicians need to survive. There's not many houses that play this kind of music. There are only a few that do this type of music regularly, every single week or with a schedule, with an agenda. Spaces like this are vital for a musical community. Relaxed and low pressure, they give artists a chance to make connections or jump into new combos. Some nights, it's as much clubhouse as club. Sometimes, I only know what's going to happen when they enter the door and I see the instruments because I know that. So, you're going to play here tonight. It's not all the houses that give this freedom to musicians. Everybody wants to know who is your best player, who is your drummer, who is... Who is? We don't work like that. I always trust their work, and I know they're going to do something great. Alexandra told us that recent changes in the city cut both ways. Tourists, hungry for live music and fill the clubs, but they've also triggered a wave of gentrification. The venue is under threat. There's been talk of transforming the club into a fine dining restaurant. Keeping the music going isn't easy. Of course, not all African music in Lisbon is underground. In fact, over the past decade, a very different kind of African sound has taken over the airwaves. I'm talking about Kizomba, a bright synthetic bounce that can be heard everywhere in Lisbon. We are hearing Jade City, or Already Decided, a collaboration between the Mozambican star Boy Teddy and Portuguese producer DJ Ademar. Many of those who organize Lisbon's live African music scene look down on Kizomba, criticizing it as slick, formulaic, and commercial. Well, they might have a point. But those very qualities have allowed the music to thrive across borders and languages. Kizomba has served as a unifying musical force in Lusophone Africa for decades. To its original fans in the late 80s and early 90s, it was a style that felt both local and cosmopolitan, incorporating drum machines and synthesizers into a beat flexible enough to work with a host of different musical styles. And believe me, once you've wrapped your ears around its sugary delights, hmm, you just might get addicted. Kizomba has been popular in Lisbon's African community for years, but its crossover into the European mainstream came in an unexpected way. Dance classes. Producer Sam Backer investigated the scene. No matter who I talked with in Lisbon, everyone told me that I had to check out Beleza, a storied venue that has long served as the most consistent outpost of African culture in the city's traditionally white downtown. I'm about to go to Beleza, it's Sunday, and they have Kizomba lessons. 
The club was beautiful, spacious and dimly lit, while the dance floor featured a full-length window looking out in the nearby water. The mostly white crowd of middle-aged Lisboners milled around awkwardly, until our instructor, Wadi Barbosa, an elegantly dressed Cape Verdean man, walked out on stage with his partner. I caught up with Wadi and his partner Minish to talk with them about teaching Kizomba. The name of their idea for dancing is Simplicity Kizomba. They like to think about it like uh, doing it easily, uh, with easy steps, uh, as it's danced in uh, Africa. Not complicated steps uh, for show. Wadi told me that Kizomba's popularity first emerged through large dance congresses. While they were mostly devoted to styles like salsa or ballroom, Kizomba instructors would attend and put on exhibitions, blowing audiences away with their intricately choreographed routines. While this may have helped Kizomba gain a following, Wadi also believes that it caused some serious problems. Yes, he's saying that uh, it's a worldwide... Uh, how do I say? Phenomenon. Phenomenon. <laughs> that uh, some teachers, some colleagues of them, are teaching a lot of show steps when they teach people how to dance. Not for show purposes, for social purposes. And so as they teach them these steps, uh, they are getting away from the real essence of the dance. They are not respecting the origin of it. Minish, Wadi's partner, says this poses a real danger to the identity of the dance. Que dançam roboticamente, não é? Sem sentir, não há musicalidade. This as a social dance, as it should be for everybody. Uh, the man must lead, the, the lady must follow. The lady must not know the steps before the man leads her. So if this doesn't happen, people start dancing like robots. Uh, like uh, all the same, all doing the same steps, not taking care of the music. We don't take care of the music. The end is nothing. It's a choreography. Doing choreography is another thing. It's not a social thing for them. As I left the club, I noticed how rapidly the crowd had shifted. While I still recognized a few of my former partners, black couples, mostly absent from the class, had begun to populate the dance floor. I'd guess that in the 20 minutes I'd been talking with Wadi, the age of the crowd had dropped by 10, maybe 15 years. The newcomers were well-dressed and definitely ready for a night out. The sun had begun to set, while the club was illuminated by the lights from the dance floor. From this angle, at least, Kazomba definitely still looked like a social scene. We bring you the future sound of Lisbon with DJ Marfox, Buraka Son Sistema, and Prince Discos. Visit Afropop.org to read interviews, hear music, and find out more about Afro Lisbon. I'm Josh Collinet, and you're listening to Afropop Worldwide from PRI, Public Radio International. During 
the late 60s and early 70s, Lisbon's African population began to grow rapidly, pulled by the promise of jobs and pushed by violence and economic turmoil at home. Tens of thousands immigrated from Angola and Cape Verde. To find out how this post-colonial influx changed the city, we spoke with Eduardo Alvarez, an urban geographer researching Lisbon's African communities. In the late 70s, many unskilled migrants came to Lisbon. They were hired to build the infrastructure that the country was developing after almost 50 years of uh, dictatorship. These poor immigrants could not access normal housing, so the solution was to settle in shantytowns. You could say that these populations created a, a sort of alternative culture, and I think music was one of the most important aspects of that culture of survival, a culture that developed out of necessity of definitely being unequal citizens in comparison to mainstream society. These improvised neighborhoods were built on illegally occupied land throughout the city. For decades, they were home to Lisbon's African population, and while conditions within them were often dire, they created a sense of community that survived even after the state began to clear the settlements. It was a slum clearance and rehousing program. It involved a wholehearted effort from the state, but because some of these places were illegal squatting of land and the state didn't have much public land uh, nearby. In many, many, many cases, it involved the displacement of populations to faraway sites. And many of the shanty towns, they were very well located. They were near transport links, they were near jobs. And so one could argue that in the cases where people were rehoused on the site or nearby, that was an improvement and was as much as the state can do. But in many other cases, people were uprooted from one place to another five kilometers away with no transport, no, no, no jobs nearby, no commerce, to what in essence were segregated housing estates that became known by the young people living in them as ghettos. These are the ghosts of colonialism. They don't go away easily. They stick around. Housing projects isolated Lisbon's African youth from the rest of the city, but the development of new technology gradually allowed them to reshape this geography. Using tapes, then CDs, and finally the internet, Lisboners from the suburban ghettos began to construct a whole new set of cultural networks. These new networks allowed musicians to reimagine the connections between Africa, Portugal, and the global black cultures of hip-hop and reggae. In 21st century Lisbon, this has given these multi-ethnic communities an edge. While the downtown's white musicians are trapped in a corner of Europe, its suburban DJs are looking to the world. One result was Kuduro, the electronic Angolan music first made a splash in Portuguese pop culture during the late 90s. 
a combination of repetitive, hard-edged beats and humorous vocals, Kujuro was initially seen as a joke. <laughs> Despite this, the music made a huge impact on the Africans living in poor suburbs. Over time, Lisbon-based producers began to develop their own version of Kuduro. Recordings were traded locally or played at small clubs and backyard parties. They were mixed with Kizomba or Cape Verdean styles like Ghetto Zouk, as well as the house and techno that dominated dance clubs in the city proper. Gradually, Kuduro became the bedrock of a distinctive Lisbon sound. The godfather of this new music was DJ Nervos. Pedro Gomez, one of the co-founders of the label Prince Discos, told us the story of how he developed his distinctive style. The story is he was DJing and uh, he decided to play one of his own tracks. This was before he was publicly producing. And when he was blending his track with this Angolan Kuduro track, he said he found this incredible loop. And instantly, everyone in the crowd started piling on top of each other, ripping their clothes apart, uh, rolling around on the floor, screaming. And he ended up playing that loop non-stop for four hours. And that's the beginning of everything. <laughs> Just as Lisbon's African underground began to percolate with these new sounds, the city's electronic scene got an unexpected boost into the mainstream. This is Buraka Son Sistema. In 2006, they came from nowhere and exploded into worldwide popularity, mixing the style and sound of Angolan Kuduro with a focus on the structures and sub-bass necessary to kill on a Western dance floor. Buraka was a sensation. We spoke with Bronco, one of the group's members, about the origins of its sound. We were outside Lux, the largest club in downtown Lisbon, where he was about to play a set. A DJ in Lisbon's club scene, Bronco and his partner DJ Riot began to make edits on the Kudoro instrumentals they received from Angolans like DJ Zenobia. The whole thing started bubbling around those beats and how we could twist those instrumentals into something and make it a signature sound. And then we started a residency, like specialized, and everybody wanted to see what that was. Dancers were coming up on stage, the nights got like super crazy. Like I had a Toshiba laptop at the time, like a PC, and it got so hot in the club, like crashed like every 30 minutes, and which was actually not bad because the whole thing was so mad and so sweaty. And five minutes for me to restart the computer and getting the music back on was actually like almost refreshing. Bronco 
feels that part of the group's rapid rise came from how strongly people reacted to the cultural idea of the project. You know how like suddenly your city produces something and it makes sense for you because you also are a part of that generation so you also know exactly the language that's happening on stage so like it clicked two ways. One way was I love this and this is a part of me and I'm a part of this and this is dope like I'm happy that this exists and in another way that it's like this is terrible like I don't want to have anything to do with this this is not Lisbon so all the hate and the love the clash of that produced like just brrr, you know it was bubbling from that just as Buraka was rocketing up the charts a very different release was making an equally big splash in the projects of Lisbon I know what it is I will put there any kappa the power the push the motherfuckers the DJs Dogetto were a Lisbon supergroup that included both DJ Nervos and DJ Marfox. Mostly in their teens, the DJs were creating for their peers. Released on the first day of school in 2006, the music echoed from cars and cell phones throughout Lisbon's suburbs, inspiring generations of even younger producers. But without support, places to play, records to sell, it was difficult, if not impossible, for the scene to grow. Black Lisboners remained at the margins of society, both economically and socially. Nightlife offered a brief but vital escape from the grind of the housing estates. But why should people listen to what is considered ghetto music? The next two years saw the DJs retire one by one, quitting music as they hit their early 20s. Eventually, only Mar Fox was left, still struggling to make his music heard. I met Mar Fox in 2007 at an event that was going on at a big foundation. It was like a contest that they put through a social project. That's Nelson Gomez, another founder of Prince Discos. A chance encounter with Mar Fox's music changed his life. I was super excited and I said like, hey, we should do something. I want to set up shows for you to grow as an artist and get your own space. It doesn't take long to understand why Nelson would drop everything to work with Mar Fox. His music is outstanding, both economical and inventive. Every beat is precisely placed and few musicians can surprise you more with less. We got a chance to meet up with Mar Fox. My name is Marlon. My artist name is DJ Mar Fox. I born in Lisbon. I'm the first guy that put Kuduro in every continent in the world, in Europa, America, North America, South America. Mar Fox started as a DJ at age 13. He looked up to his older cousin who would play at local dances and he worshipped DJ Nervos. Nervos became aware of Mar Fox and invited him to his house. 
I'm a student from Nervosi. Nervosi is my teacher. This kind of close support network is common in Lisbon's projects. DJ. Throughout our time in the city, we heard of figures like Nervos or Daddy Fox, mentors who help generations of younger musicians find their sound. The electronic music being produced in Lisbon falls under a number of different genres. Tarasinha, Kuduro, Kizomba, Funana. But we kept hearing the name Batida used to describe it. We asked Mar Fox what this meant. Marfox says the batida is like the beat of your heart, the beat of a car, like a crash. It has to do with adding a new beat. While I'm playing, they'll look at the DJ and say, whose sound is that? The beat of the heart has something to do with it. Relying on cheap software like Fruity Loops and Virtual DJ, Lisbon's producers originally created minute-long loops out of which they would construct live sets. We asked Mar Fox to demonstrate just how these loops were built. And luckily, his computer was booted up and ready to go. First, he creates the basic rhythm. Then, he puts layers on top. Tweaking them to polyrhythmic perfection. I think this will be a smash! smash. The first interaction between Pedro, Nelson and Marfox was the spark that launched Prince Discos. What followed was nothing but hard work. The label had two sides, white working-class music promoters specializing in avant-garde performance and a teenage musician from a marginalized community. These creative collaborators were separated by differences in power and culture. The discussion and challenges that followed reflected the history and geography of Lisbon. Over hundreds of hours, everyone connected with the label strived to make their motives, intentions and desires as transparent as possible. Zay, another member of Prince, describes the process. We often say it was a building of trust that was necessary. When Nelson and Pedro first approached Mar Fox, it was natural for him to feel suspicious. What do these guys want? Uh, because there was not a tradition of working on the same level. As we had to gain their trust for them to see that we really love their music and really honestly want to help them expose their music to the world. And also they had to earn our trust and uh, prove to us that they were capable of uh, working on a consistent level with the music they produced so well. While it would be nice to say that centuries of racism and oppression can be wiped away by a change in listening habits, that's too easy. For both Prince and Marfox, the best way to overcome the challenges of the past is to focus on community. For years, the suburban music scene had developed on its own. Prince was wary of rushing in and disrupting a functional cultural system, Pedro explains. So we had to learn by talking with people who were invested in this music and were part of this culture and part of these communities. We had to understand who did what first, who were the pioneers, who were the best. And we had to hear hundreds of hours of music and 
talked for hundreds or thousands of hours with a lot of people before we understood who these people were, who was more important, who was most revered and why. Because the history wasn't written at all and wasn't organized at all. It was just oral history regarding this music. The work then was so pioneering, we had to be faithful to this oral history that we were presented with. That's why, for instance, Smart Fox is the first person we published. In addition to releasing records, Prince also hosts monthly parties at a downtown club called Music Box. These events have become legendary, with fans flying from around Europe just for the chance to attend. Before them, black DJs from the suburb never played in downtown Lisbon. The parties created something else, a genuinely mixed crowd. At first, it wasn't easy. The Prince record crew told us about the early days. First parties, there was no ghetto in the parties. That there took are, months. There are only hipsters and guys from the city. Not only hipsters, <laughs> it's a wrong word to describe city people mostly, yes. One place, white, black, yellow, red, whatever. We don't care. As the parties became more established, they also grew more diverse. For Mar Fox, nights like these signal the dawn of something truly new. Mar Fox says cultural diversity is not about living in the same city and everyone occupies a position without mingling. It looks like a new Lisbon was born in one of those evenings. I might be here with my best friend who's an engineer, and at the same time I'm dancing Kuduro with a black guy from the ghetto, and we're sharing a drink or the same joint. That's life for me, that's quality of life for me. It was the bridge that was lacking between the center and the ghettos. Prince began with Mar Fox and his immediate crew, but it has since built outwards, incorporating an entire generation of DJs inspired by his example. Producers like Maboku and Lily Cox, who make up the production team CDM, are only a few years younger than Mar Fox, but they grew up with his music the way he grew up with Nervous. Listen to how they stretched Patida's basic sound on this cut from their 2015 release. with their track Acomandar. Of these young producers, Nidia Minaj is particularly intriguing. In her late teens and the only woman on Prince Discos, she began DJing after moving from Lisbon to Bordeaux, France. Let's see a VA Ghetto Gang from her first release, Estudio de Mana.
you hear the way Nadia uses space and melody? Well, it's unique, and she takes it even further on her 2015 Prince release, Danger. Here's Sentimentos. enough to catch up with Nidia in Lisbon. It was her first ever face-to-face -face interview. We met in her relative's apartment in a suburb about 45 minutes from downtown. The projects are a sudden outcropping of tall, boxy buildings surrounded by dry grass fields and covered in graffiti. Is my girl, you know? Friendly and excited, Nidia told us about how she developed her unique style. Sem ter essa batucada, tipo, as canina squad vissas stuff more like, tipo, nós começamos a bater batucada. That's how she got started doing beats with her friends, and she was like, I'd like to get into production. When she went to France, she published her and music, because when she was here, she didn't show to anybody. Eu ouvia mais DJ Maboco, DJ Lilo Cox, Back then there wasn't SoundCloud, so Firmeza, and Maboc and whatnot. But the, the new tracks on YouTube. And she remembers that they had like a radio at the high school. And she was always like going to the YouTube posts of, to see if they had new songs because she also enjoyed being the one at school that showed for the first time the, the new uh, songs. When we asked her whether she had been surprised by the international response to her music, her reply was casual. Whoa, I know that it was good, so it's good that they're thinking it's good because I know it's good. That self-confidence speaks volumes about the way things are changing. Nidia is proud of herself and of her culture. That is far easier when you grow up in a city that accepts you for who you are. Nidia is 18. That means she was only nine when the DJs Dughetto released their first album. Nidia's first release? Well, it was reviewed by international tastemakers Pitchfork Media. As Pedro points out, getting here has been a long and difficult struggle. It took a, a longer while for people to be proud of it. Because to be proud of it is to be proud of how hard your life has been. And that's not so easy if you're growing up in a country that doesn't give a about you and that puts you in the middle of nowhere in some social housing environments. It's very complicated to be proud of that because you were born and raised in a social and geographical and topographical and, and in, in an urban planning reality where you're being told that you can be here even though we don't really want you here. So to be proud of something that's born out of that is not so obvious. It was hard work making that change. Despite these successes, there is still further to go. 
Before we left DJ Mar Fox's apartment, we asked him what still needs to happen. He says, it's not whether you participate in a festival once. The point is if you can participate in that same festival 10 times after that. And if it's not you, there should be some other kid. Over the last few years, there's always been a kid representing this community. But when there's only one and the next year there's no one, it's hard. But we're managing to prove it. Every year someone new shows up. Maybe 15 years from now, the fifth generation will be able to keep playing. Then I would say all the work is done. Until that time comes, there's a lot of work to do. A lot of work. Funding for Afropop Worldwide comes from the National Endowment for the Arts which believes a great nation deserves great art. The National Endowment for the Humanities and PRI, Public Radio International affiliate stations around the U.S. And thank you for supporting your public radio station. Additional support for Afropop Worldwide comes from Womex, the showcase, trade fair and seminar for world and roots music at Santiago de Compostela, Galicia, Spain, October 19th to the 23rd. Thanks to André Ferreira, Nelson Gomez, Miguel Isadoro, Nuno Sardinia, DJ Maboku, DJ Lilo Cox, Nidia Minaj, DJ Marfox, DJ Satellite, Batida, Tony Tavarsh, Chalo Correa, and everyone else for their help in Lisbon. Thanks to Frédéric Mohn, Stephanie Alish, Eduardo Asensao, Derek Pardieu, and Pedro Gomez for their insight. And a special thanks to Francisco and Wilson of Celeste Mariposa for their profound hospitality. Visit afropop.org to read more interviews with the artists and scholars we heard from today and to hear more of the music from Afro-Lisbon. You can also find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at AfropopWW. My Afropop partner is Sean Barlow. Sean produces our program for World Music Productions. Research and production for this program by Sam Backer. And join us next week for another edition of Afropop Worldwide. Our chief audio engineer and co-producer is Michael Jones. Additional engineering by Mike Kaplan and Stephanie Lebeau. Banning Air and C.C. Smith edit our website, afropop.org. Our producer for new media is Atane Ofiadja. And I'm Georges Collinet. R.I. Public Radio International.